Countrywide on ABC Radio. I'm absolutely calling on the Deputy Prime Minister to pay attention to his own report. Growers work from sun up and sun down, sir. Countrywide. We need to speak to these growers one o'clock in the morning. And to actually act on behalf of the farmers. We're going to get it from the Yanks or the French or whoever. So let's get our foot in the door and let's be the first. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hi, I'm David Clawton. Welcome to Countrywide, this week coming from Sydney. We'll talk about exports today, which are looking pretty good for the coming year. Demand from China is one of the reasons. Every restaurant has a picture of marbled white fat beef in the window. Now, I don't think every restaurant has that beef, but they all have a picture of it. And the citizens are just clamoring for it. It's like, it's almost like cell phones or cars. It's kind of the new thing is... Everyone wants a little bit of beef. And the massive changes going on in Outback Australia as women get involved in mining and agriculture. There's always something different going on. There's always something I haven't done yet before, whether it's like looking after the grader or changing truck tyres or fixing leaks in pipes. Like there's so many different things that I'd never done before. First, though, to the death of Queen Elizabeth, who visited Australia many times and travelled widely to see as much of the country as she could. In 1954, she visited over 50 regional areas, including Wagga. To see the royal couple pass, then to Docker Street, and on into the showground, where there's a tremendous crowd of nearly 10,000 wildly cheering people. Some of those who see the royal party move towards the beautifully decorated dais have been waiting for many hours. Some indeed arrived at the showground the previous evening. But now their vigil is rewarded. They are to see their Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh at close quarters and are to witness an exhibition of typically Australian activities so intriguing that the royal couple stay 15 minutes longer than their schedule provided. Early in their tour of Australia, Her Majesty and His Royal Highness demonstrated that they wanted to find out at first hand all they could about Australia's industry, secondary and primary. So, the Queen asks many questions about types of wool, as she sees a shearing and wool classing exhibition. And the Duke is keenly interested in the methods of the shearers themselves. The recently crowned Queen was on the last leg of that two-month trip when she visited the Royal Flying Doctor Service in Broken Hill and even went down one of the mines in that town. Did anyone tell you she was the first lady to go underground at our mines? She wore white overalls. She seemed so young. That was that was uh, one. She was young and, and uh, quite pretty. She went out the Flying Doctor base. And if you go out the Flying Doctor base now, you'll see some photos of her. And uh, even she sat in the in a chair and she broadcast over the radio. And now that chair is out at the Flying Doctor base now. When you go out there, you'll... See the Elizabeth Rex chair out there? Go and sit in it if you like. As the Queen entered the control room with the superintendent, Dr Bell... My husband and I send to you who are listening, and indeed to all who live and work in the great outback of Australia, our sincere thanks for the kind words that have just been spoken on your behalf. Many Australians I have met in the United Kingdom and in Australia since I have been here, have spoken to me with unstinted admiration of you men, women and children who have made your homes in the bush. They have told me of your fortitude, your courage, your humour and your friendliness. 
and of the magnificent way in which you have overcome the problems of living in this region of vast distances and great loneliness. Now that I have met some of you and seen from the air something of the immense and challenging country in which you live, I know that they were right. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth speaking on the School of the Air. A North Tasmanian farmer has recalled memories of a visit by Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip to his family property back in the 50s. Connorville at Cressy has been in the family for almost 200 years and Roderick O'Connor says there's a family connection to Prince Philip that led to the visit. But this day was a bit different to others on the trip because of its relaxed manner. I think it's the first time that, uh, that uh, well, she hadn't been on the throne for long, but that uh, the commoners uh, didn't have to vacate the residence. And uh, so uh, my father and my grandmother were dining with uh, the Queen uh, that evening with members of, uh, of Parliament and, uh, and the Governor, I, I believe, and a few other family members. So what did your dad tell you about the visit? Uh, he must have been awestruck. Uh, they were. I mean, that was a really big deal in, the, in those days. Um, I mean, I just remember him saying that, you know, people lining the streets, um, even the staff, the whole place, the place took months to get sorted out. Uh, we had an extension put onto the house just for that one night, visit, one night visit. What did the Queen actually do on the property while she was there? Uh, they uh, walked uh, around. I think they had a look at some of the horses uh, on, the, on that afternoon. Um, I think, uh, and then met a lot of the uh, the Conable staff, and then the next day had a wander through the garden with my father and uh, my grandmother, and both uh, the Queen and uh, Prince Philip uh, planted trees, uh, which are still there. We're not entirely sure whether Prince Philip's is still the original, but the Queen's uh, beautiful golden elm is is. Uh, had a few brushes with a bit of weather occasionally, but it's still, but it gets manicured and looked after very well. Roderick O'Connor speaking to Tony Briscoe. The Queen may well have enjoyed that visit more than others because of her love of horses. Alongside the ones she kept to ride herself, the Queen had 25 horses training for racing. She breeds around 20 mares a year at the Royal Stud at Sandringham, and she was racing horses all over the world, including Australia, as recently as this year. Away from the Queen's death now to some figures that came out this week forecasting record exports of food and fibre. Good weather and high prices for produce are pushing the forecast value of exports past $70 billion. Here's Jared Greenville from the Australian Bureau for Agricultural Resource Economics and Sciences. We're looking at another really strong year for agriculture nationally and what we're expecting to see is the second highest value production year ever um, with the sector value expected to reach around $82 billion. That's down slightly from what we saw last year. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. Performance we considered just a few years back in 2020-21, we were looking at $73 billion. Um, the other big story that we have this for, the, for this year is that our exports are set to hit a record value, um, rise by 5% on what we saw last year, up to $70.3 billion. And that's the first time the, the sector's exported more than $70 billion. Jared Greenville. China's appetite for beef is one reason our exports are going up. Meat analyst Brett Stewart spoke to Matt Brown and says sales charts for China look like a plane taking off. Uh, China imported a record volume, 274,000 tonnes of beef 
it was up 42% from a year ago. And so I'm expecting we'll see another month in August of record high beef imports. Um, but Brazil is absolutely just full out as hard as they can trying to get all the beef they can get for China today. And China is paying big money, aren't they? This is not like a flood of cheap meat going into China. Right. That's what's shocking. When you look at the average import price, uh, the average import price in July was the highest on record. Every month is a higher price on beef to China and every month is a higher volume. And so economically, if it's higher tonnage and a higher price, there's only one way to explain that, and that's demand. And have we got to the heart of what's driving that demand and that appetite for beef? The last five years, they have absolutely went bananas for Western-style beef, for Japanese-style, for grilled beef. And so it's not hot pot anymore, it's grilled. And, you know, with COVID, I haven't been to China since 2019, but I was there three times that year. And you go through the malls in Beijing and Shanghai, every restaurant has a picture of marbled white fat beef in the window. Now, I don't think every restaurant has that beef, but they all have a picture of it. And the citizens are just clamoring for it. It's like, it's almost like cell phones or cars. It's kind of the new thing is everyone wants a little bit of beef. And we know the China math of 1.4 billion times any number is a big number. The China math has just lit it up. Meet analyst Brett Stewart. This was a big week for awards, including Farmer of the Year. Michael Taylor from New England in northern New South Wales received the top prize at Parliament House in Canberra. He changed his long-running family operation, including new enterprises, and making others more sustainable. Rick Wright was also acknowledged for his achievements as Legend of the Year. Rick grew up in northern New South Wales as well, just outside of Armidale, on a property his family owned for nearly 100 years. He had a long career in agri-politics, improving cattle genetics and supporting young people into agriculture, but he was instrumental in launching the first online livestock selling platform in the 1980s. We've always been Hereford breeders as opposed to meat people, in actual fact. Um, so, and the Herefords that we ran dated back to the first Herefords on the mainland of Australia in 1827. And so there's a lot of history there, and, and it was a big, bold move to, to infuse them with Simmental. But we're having trouble with the, uh, the carcass yields, in that there was a lot of waste on the old traditional British breed carcasses, a lot of brisket fat and, and fat on the other side of the butt of the tail, which in the old days was very good for hardiness in, in, in uh, tough years, drought years, but in actual fact it came out of fashion, the Heart Foundation was frowning on this particular sort of fat, and so we ended up, um, this infusion removed that waste, carcass yields increased by about 20%, and they grew faster because of that hybrid vigour component, I think. Mm. Crossbreeding is something that no one really thinks twice about now, but in the 70s, what was the wider industry saying about what your family was doing? They were horrified that we were we were in actual fact, uh, to put it crudely, probably bastardising uh, traditional Herefords. The Hereford Society itself frowned upon it. Um, but having said that, all of a sudden, the returns on the on the from the meat side of the cattle industry were, were going gangbusters because we got involved in carcass feedback, uh, Ozmeat feedback trials, which indicated that we were well in front. By, uh, this from the top end to Tassie, so, countrywide um, on ABC Radio. Ran on a bit, but in actual fact, um, the genes now being infused are, are 
really changing the structure of carcasses in order to make sure people can stay viable really mm. that's what it boils down to mm. how did you see the demand for your cattle change well it was a t it was tough times early because we had no we were reliant on trying to sell cattle on the property which was 50 kilometers out of town and the freight component for that 50 kilometers for say a couple of thousand head of cattle was fairly big mm -hmm. so we thought well there's always got to be a better way to do these things so we uh, we, we uh, started on farm property sales and that, in a drought year, was tough going because who wants to buy cattle in a, in a drought in a you know cloud of dust and cattle poor? Anyway, um, seasons got better, and and we said, well, we want to better the system, and what better way to do it than lock in uh, with a video concept for a start? So the cattle were videoed in the paddock, um, just run along a fence and videoed in a paddock, and then. They went to some six or eight outside, what they called out-sale centres from, well, from memory, Leangather, uh, Victoria, Panola in South Australia, uh, Scone here and, and, and uh, Moree. We'd pick the out-sale centres where the season was. Mm -hmm. And what that did was it, it enabled people to, to buy cattle knowing the feed they had. So instead of having two people with their heads together at a sale yard, saying you have this pen and I'll have that, <laughs> um, we managed to widen the bidding audience, and, and it took out any risk of lot splitting. Or, and it, since then, it's gone well. Yeah, we're pretty proud of that. Again, that's something that we probably take for granted: buying cattle off the box. It's very, mm. um, you know, I'm sure it's part of a lot of not only producers but agents' day-to-day -day exactly. operations mm. now. Mm. Did you know at that time just how revolutionary? you know, you filming cattle running along a fence would be? No, but we were so frustrated by the by the old system, really, of, of um, struggling against the odds, and that's, that's what it was, and there were more agents than I think than there were cattle in those days. There seemed to be uh, <laughs> a, a lot of agents popping up like mushrooms because it was a, it was a licence to print money. Just a sale is a sale is a sale. And so every time they have a sale, they have a commission. So we were seeing, we, we and we did all sorts of things to try to alter it in terms of um, getting involved in tendering for a sale for example mm -hmm. between two of the big agents Dalgetty's in those days and Eldest Pastoral and uh, we managed to pull back the commission rate a bit just by weight of numbers and and then as their reputation grew they, we were in demand so we could really put the screws on <laughs> getting a good result. Countrywide the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. The Rural Woman of the Year was announced this week. Dunwallen-based farmer, podcaster and founder of Motherland Australia, Stephanie Trethaway, was acknowledged for her work in providing services, resources and virtual communities for mothers in regional locations. It was something she started after she had her own difficult experience moving to a remote station. Three years ago, I felt like I was completely failing at mum life, at farm life. My struggles as a rural woman, as a rural mother, is why I'm here. Those struggles have ignited a fire in my belly to advocate for rural mums who are some of the most undervalued and under-supported women in this industry. And as my beautiful husband knows, happy wife, happy life. And I mean that not just personally at home, but if mums are suffering, industry suffers too. 
And it's taken me a while to realise that, um, you know, more than 90% of farms in this country are family-owned and operated, and the rural mums are often the glue that holds those households together. A review of Australia's top companies has found the representation of women in leadership positions is going backwards. The yearly census of chief executive women in corporate Australia suggests that reaching gender equality in the nation's biggest companies could be a hundred years away. But is it the same story in rural and regional Australia? Not on one property, in the Northern Territory, where women are already dominating the workforce and saving the cattle station about $20,000 a year on repairs and maintenance. Angus and Kimberly McKay told Hugo Rickard Bell their success comes down to hiring an all-female stock camp. It's Monday afternoon on Umbiara Station and owner Angus McKay is sitting quietly at the head of his table. He's chewing through a healthy lunch of fresh quiche and salad, oblivious to the bubbly chatter of his crew debriefing on their weekend just past. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sitting here at the dinner table surrounded by women. I've got two daughters and 35 girls working for me. It's sort of... <laughs> it's different. He's a third-generation pastoralist and grew up on the land he now runs with his wife, Kimberly. When I first come out 16 years ago, it was an all-male um, workplace in that time, so I was the only female would have a whole table full of males. So more girls are applying for the job, so, um, yeah, there's definitely been a lot more women applying for these positions than males. So Early this year we advertised, I think we had 17 or 19 females and one male apply for social hand job. Mm. So overwhelmingly female-dominated yeah. applications. Do you have a theory as to why that might be? Well, I think it's social media. I think now, you know, you get a couple of girls out in the camp here, last five, six years, they're putting it on social media. These other kids down south see that, they think, oh, if they can do it, I can do it, no. Yeah. She looks like me. I could see myself on a horse or a motorbike in the Territory. I think it's given them the confidence to actually come up here and have a go. For Angus and Kimberley, they've found this a welcome change. Such a good crew, everyone gets along. It's been a really good year staff-wise. Um, the last few years have been pretty good. We've been lucky with people hanging around for a few years and yeah. just to, I feel like we've got a good culture, yeah. workplace culture at the moment, So, yeah. which is a lot to do probably because of the girls we've got working with us. Everyone's got a bit of pride about what they do. They're proud of what they do. They enjoy it. It's, it's just not just a job for these guys. This is a lifestyle they love. You know. I think we find with the females, they're quite flexible. Um, you know, they don't just help out with the, the cattle work and the station work. They, they're flexible enough to come in and help with the children and help with the meals and help in the garden. So everyone does every job these days. A station hand's not just a station hand. She's a flexible person that can do everything on the station that we do. So, And after digging amongst the books, Kimberley's found a pretty decent silver lining. We've noticed that um, comparing our figures from one year to the next, from having an all-male crew to a female crew, that our repairs and maintenance has gone down $24,000 a year by having an all-female crew so <laughs> um were you surprised angus when kimberly told you those figures yeah, initially but when i thought about it it makes sense so you, we put girls on brand new motorbikes at the start of the season end of the year the bike's still good it hasn't been cartwheeled across the flat a dozen times so it just i guess it's their own self-preservation <laughs> sort of helps them look after gear
adopted. No, Kelly. <laughs> I'm Kelly Jensen, and this ad came up. I just give it a go and see what happens. And three days later, I was in the bus on my way to Colgara. Now, in case you're wondering, Kelly Jansen is from the Netherlands, hence the accent. And that bus trip was four years ago. Since then, she's had a few promotions and is now the leading hand of Umbiara Station. I'm pretty much Gus's right hand, so he tells me what needs to be done and I'll just do it and I'll step up whenever he's not around or when Kim and Gus are both off the station, I'll step up and lead everyone else. Would you have believed you were going to do that, I don't know, what, you said four years ago you've been here? Well, funny story, um, when I first started here I started off as nanny, so I did not see myself in this position at all and I did not know I would like it as much as I do right now. And if Kelly is Angus's right hand, Sarah Sari, a 20-year-old ringer who came up from Ballarat, is Kelly's. When I first started, there wasn't a whole lot I knew. Like, I'm even now, I'm still pretty new to this, but what I've always loved is just learning something different every single day. Like, there's always something different going on. There's always something I haven't done yet before, whether it's like looking after the grader or changing truck tyres or fixing leaks in pipes. Like there's so many different things that I'd never done before that I got to learn. So I, I think I love that the most. And obviously working with cattle. It's impossible to inscri- describe that to yeah. people that have not experienced it. Especially coming it's... from the Netherlands, there's no such a thing as a big property like this. Like on Biera, it's like a quarter of the Netherlands. What are you going to look back on? These girls, probably. I've just had an absolute ball with these guys here. They're like my family, and I think that's probably what I'll remember the most. And all the different things that I've learned. Like, I would never imagine myself being on a loader till I started doing loader work two years ago. And I only recently started to learn to work the grader, and... Before I got here, I didn't even know what a grader was. We have bitchmen all through the Netherlands, <laughs> all through Europe. <laughs> You're listening to Countrywide, across Australia and around the world on ABC Radio. And staying with women in the workforce, it's been quite a week for BHP coal engineer Lydia Gentle, based in central Queensland. She's gone from being in charge of 600 people at Mitsubishi Alliance's Peak Downs Metallurgical Coal Mine to heading up all the projects for BHP Coal. And she's been awarded this year's Women in Resources national title. She explains to Amy Phillips how automation will be a big focus in her new job. Technologies especially over the last five years, has really developed significantly. I've been involved with automating our train loadouts, uh, with implementing our autonomous haulage fleets across two of our uh, coal operations. And what I'm really seeing is, especially with companies like BHP, we have the ability and the resources to be the leader in technology. So to come up with those ways of working that no one's ever imagined before, uh, with the train loadout, we were able to automate a you know, 20-year-old clamshell design that had never been automated in the Southern Hemisphere. 
So being able to draw upon people's knowledge and experience to come up with new ways uh, to solve our problems has been absolutely amazing. So I presume this is at the Peak Downs Mine near Moorumbah. How quickly, just give people an idea outside the industry, how quickly now those trains can be loaded? Um, it's The trains are loaded very specifically, so it's really about ensuring that they're not overloaded. So when you have such a constrained uh, rail network as we do have, ensuring that we don't have overloads enables trains to move um, on time. So that ensures that everyone in that network has access to that rail network and we're not causing delays. So we're seeing a reduction um, in trains being overloaded. We're seeing that they're loaded to exactly 99.9% of their capacity uh, and they're going through the train loadouts exactly as scheduled. So it it still can take up to three hours to load a train, um, but it's, it's really with that accuracy that we've been quite proud of. How many women now share those seats with you and how has that changed in the 17 years of the mining industry? I remember I was one of two that studied engineering um, and it was quite confronting. I had no idea it was a male-dominated profession at the time. And now when I go through universities, it, it's almost balanced and it's phenomenal to see that we're attracting more people not only into engineering but the resource sector there's over 50,000 people now in the mining and resource sector and quite privileged to say we're almost well we're over 30 percent gender diversity so that's enabling us to come up you know with those innovative ways of working to be safer and more productive. There's a lot of focus on Australia's future with coal, obviously uh, mostly about thermal coal and your metallurgical coal, but would you encourage young women to consider the mining industry or do you believe that there is a sunset to mining in Australia? No, I don't believe so. I would definitely encourage women to join. Um, Just to give you an example of how mining actually contributes to everyone's lives, we're currently in the process of looking at how we can recycle our tyres to then put a crumb rubber seal on Queensland roads. So that not only improves the lives of um, the workers, but, but, but also all our um, local communities. And I think taking that approach to mining, there's so many applications where it can be broader than just the mine site. You know, Australia is such an amazing country with some of the highest quality um, deposits in the world. And I think we really need to to look at that to see how we can use not only um, the coal that we have in steel manufacturing, but also how we can use the byproducts of mining um, to create that better world. BHP coal engineer Lydia Gentle. And away from all the awards, there are plans afoot to develop a national recycling scheme for farm plastics. The National Agricultural Plastics Stewardship Scheme has been running a couple of pilot projects in Queensland and northwest Victoria. Project manager Carl Larson, an associate with RMCG, says there's been a lot of interest from farmers. Yeah, we've collected over 40 tonnes of agricultural plastics so far, and that number's increasing each week. Um, the pilot has been progressing really well and um, it's great to see the collaboration between farmers on the ground, um, the plastic recyclers taking the material and some of the agricultural industry groups and the local community really rallying behind it. What sorts of plastics are we talking about? So we've got uh, irrigation tube and table grape covers from horticulture um, that are being collected in Mildura and in Swan Hill. We've also got grains 
silo bags that are used for the temporary storage of uh, grain on farm, being collected at Swan Hill and Oyen as well. Okay, so more than 40 tonnes of ag plastics collected. What's happened to that plastic? Yeah, great question. So ultimately, we'd like to see this plastic being turned back into its original product. So the irrigation tube that we're collecting, we're sending that to recyclers in Adelaide and Melbourne, and that will become new irrigation tube, which is fantastic. For some of the other plastics that are uh, lower value or lower quality, such as the grain silo bags, we're turning those back into things like street furniture, fence posts or bollards. Um, So they're becoming new products, but just not back into their original ones. Again, this is really advantageous because it means we're getting that plastic off farm and we're getting it out of landfills, which is taking up a lot of room and becoming more expensive. Carl Larson, an associate with RMCG, talking about recycling plastics in agriculture. And that's Countrywide for this week. I'm David Clawton. But you can get more rural information on the ABC Rural website and our Facebook page. Thank you.